The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au Just out of curiosity, before I begin our message, how many of you this morning, as you were singing that song, thought about the words you were singing? Amen. Good on you. It's not an easy word. They're not easy words to sing if you actually stop and realize what you are singing. Lord, take my life and make it wholly thine. Do we realize what those words really mean? Take my life, take it, make it all yours. Use it completely for your glory. Make it wholly thine. Fill my poor heart with thy great love divine. Take all my will, my passion, myself, and my pride. He didn't say take some of my will, a little of my passion, a bit of my pride, and, and some of myself. He said take it all. One of my fears is as we come together and we sing songs that are, and hymns that are so familiar to our hearts, is we get caught up in a tune that we know, rising, swelling words and movement of music, and we sing those words and we haven't got the faintest idea what we're singing. O Holy Ghost, revival comes from Thee. Send a revival Start the work in me. Do we mean that? Because if God starts a revival, and it is my prayer, and a number of people in this church are pleading with God that He would bring a revival into this church, into this community, but it's got to start in my heart and in yours. Send a revival and start the work in me. Thy word declares, Thou wilt supply our need. For blessings now, O Lord, we humbly plead. Do we? Brothers and sisters in Christ, it's my heart's desire that God would powerfully work in our lives. Why? So I can see all the empty chairs filled up? No. That is a temptation, don't get me wrong, it is. But that's not what we want. What we want is to see a church that is so powerfully changed by God. When people walk by the door and they hear the singing and they hear the praying, and what will cross their minds and their hearts as they hear us is, God is at work in those people's lives. When the love that we have for Christ that goes between each other spills out those doors and down those streets. And people will know that Jesus is in that building with those people. Not the building means anything, it's just the building. But he's in the hearts and lives of those people. I hadn't realized. I'm questioning you and I'm questioning my own heart too. I hadn't realized the power of those words when I picked that song. It's when I was sitting there or standing there singing them with you that the power of them just kind of hit me. Revival comes from thee. Send a revival. Start the work in me. And brothers and sisters in Christ, it's easy to look around the room and say, that person needs, or, well, she sure needs a revival. Boy, he certainly needs a revival. The reality is every time we do that, there's three fingers pointing back at ourselves saying, yeah, for every revival in his heart, there needs to be three revivals or three times a revival in my own heart. So it is my prayer this morning that God would bring a revival and the revival would start in all of our own hearts. Let's pray and then we'll go to our message. Father, the powerful words that we have just been singing, take all my will, 
Take all my passion, take all myself and my pride. I surrender, Lord, in me abide. And Father, we would turn those words into a prayer this morning. Father, as we have gathered with the word of God open before us, we plead with you, O God, that for each and every one of us sitting in this room, Lord, take our lives. Father, we plead that you would make our lives wholly yours. Father, we look at that word, surrender. And Lord, as we would bow our heads in in prayer, I pray, I plead with you, O God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would take hearts in this room and cause them to surrender. Father, break our stubborn wills. Break our self-reliance. Tear out the religious thinking, the religious ways that we have built up. Father, what a great condemnation, the words of the Old Testament. This people worships me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Father, I cry out to you and I plead with you, O God, by the power of the Spirit of God, that you would work in all of our hearts. Father, you would tear away the religion. You would tear away our passions for other things. Father, you would tear away our pride. And Lord, we know that when you begin a work like that, it will hurt. But Father, we also know that without that work happening in all of our lives, we will carry on doing just what we've done before. But Father, our desire is that the Spirit of God would fill us and change us and make us like the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we plead with you that you would bring revival. Lord, start in my heart. Start in the hearts of the elders of this church and the deacons of this church. Father, break us that we might be powerfully used of you. Father, we ask you these things and we plead with you for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, take your Bibles and we'll look at Ephesians chapter 4 again. Excuse me. Let's read from Ephesians 4, verses 1 down to verse number uh, 10. Verse number 10. He says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us grace was given, According to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. Let's Let's keep reading. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, 
by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. How is this Christian life possible? How is living and functioning as a Christian church possible? The expectations of Christian body life are very high. How do we maintain the unity of the Spirit? We are to strive to maintain it, Paul tells us. How do we live in constant God-glorifying harmony and joy and obedience to God? How do we get along with each other? I don't think it's escaped anybody's attention how sad it is that the church just seems to be doing one thing, the very opposite of what it was called to do. It was called to grow and fill the earth, and yet it seems like as we grow, we practice division and splitting and cutting and people breaking away and leaving, and as it, it gets bigger, it just seems to crack and fracture. And I wish it was, it was the 1600s and the 1500s and, the, and men like Luther and Calvin and other guys like him were preaching the Word of God. And the Word of God was having a powerful impact on the church and people were dividing because of truth and error. But the very sad reality is that in the church we live in, in this day and age, we divide not because of truth and error. We divide mostly because we just can't get along with one another. That's a shame on us, is it not? How is it possible to live as a Christian in a world that's self-centered and sin-saturated, in a world that is God-denying, God-hating, and frankly, God-ignoring? You walk out on those streets and you see people with despair on their faces, and you want to hand them a tract, you want to engage them in a conversation, and repeatedly they will brush you aside. I don't want anything to do with that. I'm not interested. And you can see the pain on their faces. You can see the despair written all over their face. They don't want anything to do with it. How is it that we live in that world without becoming tainted by it? How do we live God-glorifying, God-centered, joyful, obedient lives? How do we properly and wisely minister to one another's needs? We can easily substitute psychological ideas and, and humanistic thinking and, and start propping one another's egos up to try and get us to get along. But ultimately it fails because it deals with the, it doesn't deal with the ultimate problem, which is sin in our hearts. How do we please the Lord in all that we do? How is it possible to not only live as individual believers in our own circumstances, but to also live as a corporate body of believers ministering one to another? And the great answer from Scripture is all those things are possible because, as Paul says, to each one of us, Grace was given in relation to the measure of Christ's gift. So two things are highly important in that text. Grace given and Christ's gift. They, they fit together. Paul is saying we've been given grace in a connection, in a relationship to the gift of Christ. So we've got to know what those two things are because it affects everything I just said about how we live and how we function as Christians in this world. What are the gifts that he has given to us as individual members and believers in the body? We saw a few weeks ago from this text that Christ descended in humility, that Christ conquered sin and Satan and death through his suffering. Christ ascended on high in victory. And then the text says that Christ gave gifts. Those gifts are how it is that we may live as the church, maintaining the unity of the Spirit and living in obedience to God. Christ has given gifts to us. The gifts He has given are an expression of His goodwill, His favor towards us. 
in fulfillment of long-standing desires and promises from the Old Testament that go back 1,500 years before the Lord Jesus finished his work. Those desires were already being expressed. The Old Testament people of God did not have a general outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Some individual men throughout the history of the Old Testament experienced it. Uh, men like Moses and Joshua and Samuel and David and the prophets and some of the kings. The difference between them and us is many of the Old Testament people of God saw visible spiritual and miracles. They had certain visible evidence or elements of God right in front of them. They had in the Old Testament times as they followed the tabernacle around through the wilderness, that great column of cloud and fire that went before them. And they could look up and they could see it over the tabernacle. If you were that high priest that got to go inside the veil once a year, you could look in there. Now you'd see that beautiful Ark of the Covenant, that great gold-crusted box with the seraphim on top of it, all splattered and covered with blood. But hovering over that would be the Shekinah of God's presence and glory. Of course, if you weren't the high priest and you didn't have blood and you didn't have smoke rising up in front of your face, the moment you saw it would be the moment of your death because you would die as the holiness of God would strike against you. But they had certain things like that. But listen, I heard a Christian say to me face to face a couple of weeks ago, I just wish I lived in the Old Testament where I could see these things of God face to face. But you know what? We must never ever desire to be like that because we have something infinitely better. You say, you know what, wouldn't it be so cool if Jesus would come into this church and sit amongst us and we could listen to him speak? And you know what Jesus would say? You've got it better. Even better than me being here with you. He said to his disciples, it's better that I go away because when I go the Father will send you the helper, the comforter who will dwell in you. He will teach you. He'll lead you. He'll convict you of sin. He'll do so many things. We have it so much better. Even in the Old Testament, Israel, following that cloud and pillar around the wilderness, so much better than even watching Moses go up on a mountain that was covered in black darkness and clouds and thunderclaps and the ground is shaking and all those the voices and the trumpets, all those things they heard. We've got it better. We have the Spirit of God living in us. The Spirit of Jesus dwelling in our hearts. I want you to notice, and I want to take a, a walk through the Old Testament going back, and I want you to see how this desire was way back there in the old days, and it carried all the way through, and we have a beautiful thing that God has given us in these gifts. First of all, Christ inspired Moses to see the need for the gifts. In Numbers chapter 11, we're going to do something different today. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pick up my Bible and I'm going to hold it in my hands and you're going to pick up your Bible and you're going to hold it in your hands and you're going to take your Bible and you're going to turn all the way back over to Numbers with me and we're going to look in our Bibles and we're going to read together. Too often, I just read the text off my notes. In case you're wondering, the, the blue text on the bottom there, that's the Bible text that I usually read. But we're going to just use these things that God's blessed us with and look for ourselves. So take Numbers chapter 11. If you got a phone, that's fine too. Numbers 11, verse 24 to 30. We'll read together. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, in case you're wondering. It's all right. Numbers 11, verse 24 to verse 30. This is a story of Moses and the 70 men who are filled with the Spirit. Listen to what it says. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. Also he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and stationed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him, and he took, that's the Lord, took of the Spirit who was upon Moses, and he placed him upon the 70 elders. And when the Spirit rested upon them, they prophesied, but they did not do it again. But two men had remained in the camp. The name of one was Eldad, and the name of the other was Medad. And the Spirit rested upon them. Now they were among those who had been registered, but they had not gone out to the tents, and they prophesied in the camp. 
So a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the attendant of Moses from his youth, said, Moses, my Lord, restrain them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. Then Moses returned to the camp, both he and the elders of Israel. What's the point? The point is this. Moses knew by experience the Spirit's power resting on him. He knew, I'm convinced of it, that a kingdom of priests to God, which is what Israel was supposed to be, all filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesying. Just a little sidestep here. When he says prophesying, he doesn't mean something uh, bizarre like they were telling the future. What it means is they were standing there and talking and speaking to one another of the glories and the wonders of the God that they served. Just like when we get together, you have those friends in your life and some friends that you hang out with and we talk about in my case, motorcycles or woodworking or motorcycles or woodworking or something like that. And then other friends you hang out with and you talk about motorcycle and wood and then you're right into talking about Jesus. Simon Pyatt, when he gets here, what you don't know is you have him for 45 minutes on a Sunday night or a Sunday morning. I spend about four hours with him on a day and all we do is talk about the Lord and the Lord's work and Scripture and church and the Lord's work. And we just talk back and forth. And we share back and forth with all the things that God is showing us and teaching us from Scripture. And we challenge and sharpen each other's uh, iron as we iron sharpens iron together. And it's a wonderful time of encouragement and blessing and refreshment. And what Moses wants... He wants it that the Lord's people would all have the Spirit resting on them and all of them would be proclaiming and teaching back and forth one to another, speaking of the wonders and the glories of God. That was his desire. And what Moses, I think he knew, is he knew that there would never really be unity in amongst those people of God until God's Spirit rested on them all, not just a few. He knew they'd never truly live as a kingdom of priests. And of course, we know the story of what happened. Moses disappeared up the mountain to get the law of God. He was 40 days and 40 nights on the mountain. They were looking up there waiting to see if he going to come back. And they finally said, as this Moses, we don't know what's happened to him. Let's make some gods. And they immediately started taking all the gold earrings and jewelry, melted it all down, and they fashioned it with a tool, and they made a calf like the golden uh, bull that was in Egypt. But there wasn't enough gold to make a big bull, so they made a smaller calf, and they began to worship it. Their hearts turned away almost immediately. Within 40 days, they're walking after the gods of the land. And Moses knew that without the Spirit of God resting on them, they would never really understand and get it. And I'm convinced that Moses, even though they had the law, the covenants, the tabernacle, the priestly system, that without the Spirit of God resting on them, they would never be able to experience true spiritual renewal. Why are we singing those words? O Holy Ghost or O Holy Spirit, revival comes from thee. Moses knew it. Brothers and sisters in Christ, what we need... We have been given the Spirit of God, but we need the revival. We need that heart turned unto the Lord absolutely fully. We need our hearts taken and belonging to Him wholly and completely, that there would be spiritual renewal amongst us. Secondly, God or Christ promised the gifts through the Old Testament prophets God raised up judges to govern his people, often filling them with his spirit to carry out their ministry and work. And as the centuries wore on, it became increasingly clear the people of God were totally unable to obey God's commands. The people of God were unable to turn themselves away from the idolatry that polluted the land. They lived in constant disobedience and constant unfaithfulness to God. And the Old Testament nation of Israel is a vivid picture. I encourage you with all my heart, read the Old Testament. 
Read the stories because they'll give you a graphic picture of what it's like to try and be the people of God without the Spirit of God, to try and live lives that are pure before God. They couldn't do it. The law said, he who does these things will live. But the law also said, he who does not do these things will not live. And they did not do them. And their hearts were far from the Lord. One of the saddest verses in the Old Testament is, this people worships me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Brothers and sisters in Christ, is it possible that verse could be written across the doorway of your heart? Or mine. They worship me with their lips. They know the songs. They know the choruses. They know the texts. But where is their heart? But God didn't leave them like that. The Old Testament nation of Israel, there were prophets raised up by God in there, and God began to promise through the Old Testament a great messianic age that would come. There would be a new covenant established by God. There will be a complete forgiveness provided by the suffering servant of the Lord. It would be based on the obedience of Christ. It would include all the nations as well as the nation of Israel. It will be marked by the giving and pouring out of the Spirit of God. It would include an intimate knowledge of God through the Spirit. Now, I want you to take your Bible again. Go to roughly the middle section. Let it open and find Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah 44, we're going to read verses 1 to 5. This is what the Bible says. I'll give you a sec to find it. Isaiah 44, beginning of verse 1, it says this, But now listen, O Jacob, my servant, And Israel, whom I have chosen, thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, for I will pour out water on thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants, and they will spring up among the grass like poplars by streams of water. This one will say, I am the Lord's, and that one will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand, belonging to the Lord, and will then name, and sorry, will name Israel's name with honor. You see what he's saying? I'm going to pour out my spirit. A day will come when I won't just give my spirit to the prophets here and over here and one here. It won't be like David's day when David cried to the Lord in his repentance, take not your Holy Spirit from me. This coming day would be a day when all of us would receive the spirit of God in its fullness, in his fullness. Take your Bibles again, flip a little further towards the, the front or the, the end. Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel 36, reading from verse 22 to verse 28. The Bible says, again, I'll give you a second to find it. There is something so cool to a preacher when you hear rustling of pages in a church service. The Word of God, I know it's cool if you got a phone and you do the, the swipe thing, but the swipe doesn't make any sound whatsoever, but the page is rustling. It's just the, it's a charming sound to a preacher to hear pages rustling. 36 and verse 22, the Bible says this, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, 
I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Listen, verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you'll be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers so that you will be my people and I will be your God. Flip over a couple pages, Ezekiel 39 and verse 25. Ezekiel 39 and verse 25. Bible says, therefore, thus says the Lord God, now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name. They will forget their disgrace and all their treachery, which they have perpetuated against me when they live securely on their own land with no one to make them afraid. When I bring them back from the peoples and gather them from the lands of their enemies, then I shall be sanctified through them in the sight of the many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord their God, because I made them go into exile among the nations and then gathered them again to their own land. I will leave none of them there any longer. Verse 29, I will not hide my face from them any longer, for I will have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. Again, it's a promise that God would put his spirit, pour it out. It wasn't just here and there. It would be poured out on the people in mass. One more scripture, Joel chapter 2. So keep going towards the end. You will have Hosea, then Joel. If you hit Amos, you've gone too far. Joel, little prophet of the Old Testament. Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 29. Some of you, if you read the book of Acts frequently enough, you'll recognize this verse right away. Joel chapter 2, verse 28 and 29. The Bible says this, It will come about after this that I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions. Even on Male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. God is promising through the Old Testament prophets that he would pour out his spirit. Now you notice initially, he's talking about the people of Israel, the people of Jacob. But in this last text here, he's talking about all nations. All mankind would receive that pouring out of the Holy Spirit. You read through the book of Acts, and what do you find there? You see, the Spirit of God poured out on the Jews on that morning, at Pentecost morning, but by the time you get to chapter 10, you've got the centurion, and the Spirit of God falls on him, and he begins to speak in tongues, and they know, hey, this is one of them. And Peter and all the disciples get together, and, and up until this point, everything has been focused on the people of Israel, and all of a sudden they realize God's purposes go beyond just the four walls of Israel. They go to all the nations. And Jesus said in the beginning, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses to Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, which includes, praise the Lord, Australia and Canada and America and South Africa and all those other places far away from Jerusalem. He would pour out his spirit. Notice again that the teaching of the Word of God and the Spirit of God being poured out, they're close beside each other. The Spirit was poured out in the people back in Moses' day. What they start doing? Prophesying. Speaking of the glories and wonders of God. Go to Jeremiah 31, the new covenant there. And one of the, one of the marks of the new covenant, besides the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, is the fact that all men will know the Lord. Nobody's going to say, know the Lord, because we'll all know Him. Now we recognize that that's an, a future thing. We're working towards that. And so we have pastors and teachers and evangelists and apostles and prophets that are raised up by God to speak the Word of God that we might grow in our knowledge of God. But praise the Lord. There is a day coming, folks. Listen. When God will finish His work on this earth, 
And we'll be caught up to be with the Lord. Faith will give way to sight and we will see Jesus and the work in us will be finished. We will know as we are known. Bible says that. Meaning what? Meaning we're going to see the Lord and we'll know him. How? Well, one clear sign is he'll be the most glorious, beautiful human ever in existence. And he'll also have scars in his hands and his feet and his side. He'll be a glorious king of kings. But not just knowing him by sight, we will know him heart to heart. We'll know who he is because our spirits will connect in that sense. 400 years go by of silence. Malachi finishes his last prophecy. Interesting enough, some of the Jewish secular writings that happened between Malachi and when John the Baptist come, a lot of them spoke in anticipation of the Spirit being poured out. I didn't know that. I was just doing some research. Those books, they're not sacred books. They're like buying a, a R.C. Sproul book from Kurong. It's no different. And the, but these Jewish writers in that time, they're all writing and looking for uh, the Holy Spirit to come. They're all in anticipation. So when John's dad, Zachariah, remember the story? He goes into the temple and he's offering up the, the incense altar and he's in there a long time. And all the people are outside and they're all doing their prayers and they're starting doing like some of you do. You know, you look at your watch while you're praying and wondering what's taking Zachariah so long? He's inside the temple. And he's seen a vision. Your son will be born. He will be filled with the Spirit from the womb. You know the story. He goes home. Elizabeth gets pregnant. And Mary comes along one day. And what does John do in Mary's womb? He leaps for joy in her womb. He gave an almighty kick. And all the mums in the room know exactly what that's like. He all of a sudden, wow. Because he in his womb recognized the presence of a Savior inside Mary. God was in the room and that man jumped for joy. Baby, jumped for joy. He comes and what happens? He goes out on the riverside, starts preaching the gospel. Preaching about repentance and return to God and spiritual renewal. And he's filled with the Spirit of God. And he's crying out to the people of Israel, repent of your sin because the Messiah is coming. And they say, are, are you him? Are you the one? You see the Old Testament Israel from the time of those prophets and the exile and the coming back and the kingdom was not reestablished and all those struggling years and conquest by one enemy nation after another, after another, after another. And you know what God was doing? He was preparing them for the king that would come. And by the time John the Baptist shows up, they're all saying, are you the one? We've been looking. Are you him? And he says, no. It's the way he says, <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> uh, Luke chapter 3, verse 16. As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John the Baptist promised it. The Old Testament prophets promised it. Jesus gave them those promises, and they promised it. And then the Lord himself showed up, and he himself promised it as well. Jesus came filled with the Holy Spirit and ministered in the power of the Holy Spirit. And you got to remember, Jesus is that prophet that Moses said, one day a prophet just like me will come. Moses had the Spirit of God on him. He gave the Word of God. He got it from God on the mountaintop and he came out and gave it to all the people. Jesus went up on a mountain and spoke. It's a beautiful picture of God speaking from a mountaintop in both cases. What did Jesus say? You've heard it said, but I say unto you. That was incredible. Nobody, I think, understands fully the weight of those words. You've heard it said, but I say unto you, thus saith the Lord. He was standing there and saying to them, I'm God and I'm speaking. Listen. You know what he did? end of his time, he got his disciples together like we were talking about uh, last week of Easter. And he began to make them promises. Take your Bibles and flip over to John 14. John 14 and 15 and 16. We'll look at a couple of texts here. John 14 and verse 16, the Bible says this. 
John says, or not John, uh, Jesus is speaking to his, to his disciples and says this. Verse 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. <clears throat> Sorry. That he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. What's he talking about? The spirit of God is here, disciples. He's in me. And therefore, he is with you, and you'll recognize him when he comes, because it's my spirit. The Bible in the book of uh, Acts, I believe it is, calls the Holy Spirit the spirit of Jesus. Are they the same thing? No, they're not. They're two different persons of the Trinity. But it is also one of his titles is the spirit of Jesus. The disciples would recognize him because he was with them in the persons of Jesus Christ. He says he'll come. Take John uh, chapter 14, verses 25 and 26, just down the page a little bit. We'll read this. He says, These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. These things I have spoken to you, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send, he'll teach you more. That's why Jesus said, it's to your benefit that I go away so the Father will send the Holy Spirit. And you'll have him living. It's what Moses wanted back in the Old Testament. It's what the prophets promised all the way through the Old Testament. It's what John the Baptist talked about. And now it's what Jesus is talking about. They're all pointing and promising the same thing. That the Spirit of God will come. Christ lived and ministered in the power of the Holy Spirit. He promised he would send it. And just as Luke began his book with John the Baptist saying, one will come and baptize you in the Holy Spirit. You know what Jesus said at the very end of the book? He said, tarry in Jerusalem, wait in Jerusalem, and you'll be clothed with power from on high. Clothed is the same idea as immersed, only just upside down, different way of looking at it. It's the same idea. You'll be immersed in the Spirit. You'll be clothed with the Spirit. You'll be filled with the Spirit. They're all the same idea. Luke promised it at the beginning of his book, at the end of his book. And what does he do? At the very beginning of the second volume of his book, Acts chapter 1, we read it already. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. It's all this, these gifts that Jesus is talking about or sorry, Paul is talking about Jesus giving in Ephesians chapter 4. He's speaking about two things, a gift and gifts, one singular, one plural. But they are inextricably connected together. Let's keep working our way through. Verse number 4 on your point sheet there. Christ received the gifts from the Father. And finally, we go back to Ephesians chapter 4 after a long walk from the Old Testament. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 7. Paul's argument is, we have all received grace or goodwill from God in relation to the measure of Christ's gift. And then he does something a little bit odd. He cites Psalm chapter 68 and verse 16, the 68th Psalm. He says, therefore it says, Ephesians 4 verse 8, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captive and he gave gifts to men. Now here's the trick. A little bit different. Go back to the Psalm 68, you know what you find? It's slightly different. It says this. You have ascended on high. That matches. You have led captive your captives. That matches. You have received gifts among men. Now, Paul says you gave gifts. And the psalmist says you received gifts. You say, no, wait a minute. How does that work? Did Paul just go, nah, the psalmist got it wrong. And he wrote in something different? No, I don't think so. You've got to remember something about Scripture. Really important. The writers, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, are writing about events. So you got, like, for example, four Gospels, right? So if Khan stood up and told me what the pulpit looked like on this side, and Cameron on this side, and Hannah on this side, and me on this side, we all describe the pulpit from what we can see. We're all going to describe something slightly different, but it's the same pulpit. So when the psalmist writes in Psalm 68, verse 18, about ascending on high and giving gifts, 
he is describing the same event from before. And Paul is writing the New Testament and he's describing the same event from after. So that the two of them fit together beautifully. It's just two different perspectives on the same event. Okay? So what he's saying is this. Um, what Paul... Oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm jumping ahead of my notes. That's why I'm running out of... Uh, losing my place a bit. Acts 2 verse 33 actually puts the whole event together in one go. It includes all perspectives. Luke kind of resolves the tension for us. And he says, take your Bibles, flip back to Acts chapter 2, and look at verse 33. Acts 2 verse 33, the Bible says this. Actually, there's 32 as well. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted, having received, sorry, to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. So let me read again in the words of the psalmist and Paul. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received gifts from the Father... The promise of the Holy Spirit. He has given those gifts which you both see and hear. So Psalm 68, 18 is perfectly correct. And Ephesians 4, verse 7 is perfectly correct. They're both looking at the event, one from before and one from after. And so here's the point. After having promised it through Moses and promised it through the Old Testament prophets and promised it through John the Baptist and promising it himself, Jesus has given those gifts to the church. Now the initial event when it happened was Pentecost, which is exactly 50 days, my Jewish understanding is correct, 50 days after the resurrection or after the Passover. Here's a little interesting little tidbit of, of trivia if you want to stick in the back of your Bible for fun. The Jews consider the moment of Moses getting the law on Mount Sinai, guess what feast they equate that with? You'll laugh. Pentecost. And then Jesus comes and gives the Spirit of God on Pentecost. You say, what's the significance? It's incredibly significant. Now, I don't know if it's exactly the right day. That's a Jewish tradition. It's not in Scripture. It's just a tradition they hold. That that moment when the Spirit of God came down, and what did God do with Moses on Mount Sinai? He gave him the law. And the Spirit of God came on Pentecost and filled those men. And what's the first thing they began to do when they were filled with the Spirit? They go out in the streets and they start preaching the Word of God. What's Paul say in Ephesians chapter 4? He's given gifts to men. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as teachers and pastors and so on. All of those gifts connected with the giving of the Holy Spirit. What are they all for? What are they all center around? Surprise, surprise, the Word of God. What is the Word of God for us? It is not just old, dry texts of Scripture that go back thousands of years. These are the words of the Holy Spirit that He inspired men to write. You don't look impressed yet. This is, this is concerning me. <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. Don't you get it? The Spirit of God and the Word of God are totally connected. Moses desired that the Spirit of God would rest on all the people and that they would all prophesy. They would all speak the truths of God to one another because the Spirit of God was on them. How is it? This is the question we asked at the very beginning of the message. How is it that we live this life? How is it that we minister one to the other? The way that we do that is because we have received the gift of the Holy Spirit, and we have all individually, as believers in Christ, received gifts of the Holy Spirit. You say, what are those gifts? 
Well, I believe there's 20 in total listed in the New Testament. And almost all the scholars I looked at this week said the same thing. All those gifts are listed, but they're not exhaustive. Okay? One thing we do know for sure, you've got to be careful with this, because you can go off into very strange places if you're not careful. The Spirit of God give gifts that are in agreement and in accordance with Scripture. So when I hear somebody saying, oh, did you hear in that church over there, somebody was barking in the Spirit. I go, what? And, and we kind of smile a little bit. It's sort of comical. But then you know what? It sort of sinks in a little bit. It's actually deadly serious. Because somebody is standing there, and I'm not joking, barking like a dog and saying, this is the work of the Spirit of God ascribing what would be in any other case seen as a work of the devil and saying it comes from God. How do you know what's of God in those spiritual gifts? That. That's how you know. And then we can go and go and look at all kinds of, of ideas about spiritual gifts and gifts of the Holy Spirit and sign gifts and all that stuff. How do you understand it? Slain in the Spirit. What's that one I heard? Uh, Holy Spirit glue, where people are thrown to the ground and they cannot get up because they're literally pinned to the ground by the Holy Spirit. There's nothing in here that substantiates and supports any sort of claim like that. What's my point? My point is the same thing. How we live this Christian life is by the power of the Spirit of God living in us. He has given us gifts. Why? Paul's argument in Ephesians 4, down verses 2, 3, 4, and 5, and 6, is all about the unity of the Spirit. How do we maintain the unity of the Spirit? Do we have to all look the same and do the same? Do we all have to come to church looking and acting exactly like Con? Praise the Lord, no. We don't have to come looking and acting exactly like Con or me or anybody else. What Paul's arguing, he's saying, listen, there's a need to maintain the unity of the Spirit, but to each one of us, grace has been given in relation to the gift of Christ or Christ's gift. Meaning what? Meaning God has given Nick a gift and Cameron a gift and Porchek a gift and Noel a gift and every single one of us a gift. There may be the same, a con may have the same gift as say uh, um, David's got, but he'll minister differently. Why? Because con's not the same as David. He might have the same spiritual gift. They both have the same Holy Spirit living in them. And the grace thing is so cool. Listen to this. God wants us to have unity as a body of Christ, but he doesn't want to do it where he takes Noel and puts him in a straitjacket and says, you got to act just like this, no other way. He says, Noel, you've got a natural gift of music, and I will give you a spiritual gift to use music to lead and teach and encourage and minister to the people of God. Nelson, you've got a gift that involves speaking fast. I'll use that somehow to, to teach and encourage the people of God. Con, you've got a gift of a different kind. And Peter's got a different, of a different kind. And all those gifts, God in grace gave all those different gifts. As he gave the Holy Spirit, he gave those gifts to be used. Now, there are some implications from that. Implication number one, is everybody necessary in a church? Careful how you answer. Is every believer necessary in the church that God gave them to be a part of? The answer is yes. Because Khan didn't get all 20 of the gifts. He got one, maybe two, maybe even three. That's possible. But he didn't get four through 17 or four through 20. So Khan has a few gifts and Edna has a few gifts, and Carl has a few gifts, and they all come together, and they all minister their gifts. Like, I've got two hands that do the same thing, both badly, you know, but they both do the same thing. One works from the right, and one works from the left. Two gifts. What are they, how do they work? They're working because the head sends signals to my right hand and my left hand. I'll use Cameron for a sec. 
he's playing guitar. His brain tells his hand to strum, and his brain tells his fingers play the C chord, and he strums, and it works together. And the head controlling both gifts works together to create the sound of music. The Spirit of God in each of us working in submission and concert with our head, who is Christ, takes Nick and says, Nick, you're going to do this. And he does what he does. And he builds up the body from one side. And he says, Edna, you go over here and do this. And he gives her that spiritual gift. And she ministers her gift on the other side. And she helps and builds up the body. And the same with every single gift in the body. And you look at the whole thing and you say, wow, it's Nick is such an amazing guy. We should all be so thankful we got Nick. We are, dude. Don't get me wrong. But here's the point. Moses said to Joshua, are you jealous for my sake? Meaning what? Joshua saying, forbid them. Don't let them do it, Moses. Don't let them prophesy. And the answer Moses gives tells you exactly what's going on between Joshua and Moses. Joshua was worried that somebody was going to steal Moses' place by prophesying as Moses did. And Moses says, don't forbid them. Would that all the people of God and Moses gave glory to God and said it's more important that all the people have the Spirit of God on them and all the people minister to one another than one person do it. So in grace, God has given us each these gifts. They are not to be used to bring attention to the one who's using them. You say, what about you, preacher boy? You're up on the platform, eight inches above everybody else. It's your voice we're all listening to. I hope not. I hope you're listening to the Spirit of God speaking in your heart. And the great danger with all of those gifts, terrible danger, is that God gives those gifts and the, the recipient of the gift draws attention to the fact that he has been given a gift rather than drawing attention to the God who gave them. That's why Paul says, but to each of us, Driving home the point, listen, people of God, it was God's good will that you have that gift. It was God's favor on your life that you have that gift. Don't let it go to your head. Use that gift to minister. Use that gift. What's the Spirit of God's number one priority? Anybody tell me? Holler it out. It's okay. Absolutely. Glorify Jesus. He will bring to mind the things I said. He will teach you about me. He will point to me. That was the whole point of the Spirit of God. So when God's Spirit gives you a gift, what does He expect you to do with it? Bring glory to Con? No. Bring glory to Jesus. So when that gift is exercised, it's a gracious gift of God. When it's exercised to the glory of God. Everybody gets the benefit and God gets the glory. My hand doesn't go, look at me, I'm a hand. You know, it just says here and picks up my watch and tells me it's time to stop. My hand does all kinds of things, but it brings glory to the head that controls and is in submission. What happens if my hand starts acting out of submission to my brain? There's different diseases that are associated with it. Uh, I think multiple sclerosis would be one. Parkinson's disease would be another one. They're all situations when the body begins to do things that the head says don't do. And all of a sudden there's a huge problem. Well, it's exactly the same in the church, isn't it? When we have gifts that God in grace gave us to minister to one another, and we start acting out of submission to Christ and getting glory for ourselves, the church starts to have problems. And I think every single person in the room, including us from years gone by outside of this church, knows of places and spaces where the leadership or somebody with some particular gift in the church 
got a little too big for his britches and started drawing attention and glory for himself and caused all sorts of problems and God had to bring discipline in the church to put it back in line. The whole book of 1 Corinthians was written on the, that basic foundation. So what's the point of this whole message? How do we live this Christian life? We live it in the power of the Holy Spirit. We live it using those gifts that God graciously gave to us to minister and love and share and teach and build one another up. The most basic of them is that idea of prophesying. And I don't mean something like God gave me a vision that, you know, Con's going to get a blue car. It's the idea that I begin to speak of the glories of Christ to one another. And we minister to one another as we share the word of God back and forth with each other and build each other up in Christ and build up his name. I know I've given you a lot and I've gone all over the map, but does that make sense? <laughs>